Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verses 6 to 13. The chapter speaks about eating food offered to idols. And verse 6 starts with, Yet, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things came, and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having sacrificed, having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Thus far the reading of God's word. Thank you, Verna. Every now and then we read uh, little passages that are uh, convicting, uh, and this, uh, this one kind of hurts a little bit, uh, and I say this a little bit sarcastically, food won't bring us any closer to God. That's a hard one. Um, we love food. Uh, I love food, and it shows a little bit more every year, it seems. Uh, so I'm just back today, or th- just back this week, as, as many of you know, from Puerto Rico, and when I got there, uh, I was there for a Mennonite disaster service rebuilding thing, as has been uh, put in the bulletin. Uh, I got there a few days early. I wanted to do some sightseeing. I wanted to see the city. I wanted to see the beaches. I wanted to see all of that. And so when I got there, I wasn't going to the MDS house. I was going to a hotel to, to stay there for a little bit. And I wanted to make conversation with a taxi driver. So I asked him, I said, uh, I'm, I'm going to be visiting the, the city for the next few days. Uh, is, is there a, a dish that I should be eating? Is, is there local food that I, that I need to have before I leave the island? And he, he had kind of a, a funny wit about him, and he said, you mean besides rice and beans? <clears throat> and he wasn't saying this as a way of saying, you can't beat rice and beans, as, as most of us would, uh, would understand. He was, he was being sarcastic, basically saying, really, that's all the food that people here eat. And then we were talking about something else, and he says, well, you know, there is, there is another dish. Uh, my wife doesn't make it for me anymore, uh, but there are some restaurants downtown. You could, you could maybe have that. <laughs> and so I thought, oh, well, there's, there's some, now there's some resentment here. 
that I've sort of reminded him. But then later on, uh, I had, he had given me the name of this food. I went to a restaurant, a beautiful little cafe on what I uh, discovered was uh, St. Sebastian's Road or something similar in Spanish. So I was walking down there. I thought, okay, I have, to, I have to at least see this street, which was beautiful. I have pictures. And I sat down at this little, uh, little restaurant. They brought me a menu. And here was this dish that this taxi driver's wife doesn't make for him anymore uh, called Mofongo. Fun, fun little name to say. And uh, the waiter came out and told me about the dish and how it was made and all of the options of the sauces that I could have with it. And obviously, he's, he's hoping that I'm going to buy this dish, so he's speaking about it positively. But there was a, a, a significant contrast in the sort of cultural identity between these two men. So here was a, the taxi driver was sort of selling his entire culture a little bit short, saying, yeah, we don't really have any food that's worthwhile. We eat rice and beans, it's pretty boring, uh, so that'll be about all you can expect. And I had rice and beans, which I've had boring rice and beans before, and I had different flavors of rice and beans in different parts of Puerto Rico, and it was really good. But here was this guy in, uh, in the restaurant, didn't just tell me, okay, well, it's uh, made this way and uh, sort of tastes good. He went on an elaborate explanation of what it was. So let me tell you about Mofongo. It's a beautiful, <clears throat> um, I took a picture of it. It didn't really capture the, the taste of it, obviously. Uh, so I won't uh, show it here this morning. Uh, but Mofongo is made with plantains. So it's sort of a, similar to bananas, they take the plantain, they kind of mash it into a kind of a pulp, and then they form a sort of a cup with it. And then uh, they take slices of meat. Uh, in this case, uh, they have a, a fish that swims around to the island, I guess, uh, and it's called mahi-mahi. So he, uh, everything was sounding exotic to me, so I said, pile it on. Um, so mahi-mahi was the fish that was in there, and then there was a special Creole hot sauce that they poured over top with a bunch of vegetables. It was awesome. And I was, I was eating it, I was enjoying everything. He saw that I was enjoying it, and then he came to tell me more about it. He says, yeah, we, we use plantains for a lot of things. The poorest farmers in the middle of the jungle, which is where I was going to be going a few days later, he didn't know that, just the poorest farmers in the middle of the jungle can just easily uh, have all the plantains they want. They just mush this up. They don't have to buy groceries because they always have plantains with them. And they can do everything with it. You can make these mofongo. You can uh, eat it. You can sort of treat it like bread if you need to. You can add a little bit of sugar and it's, it's a sweet dessert. It's, it's great. And here was this guy, and he explained later on he had been to New York. He lived in New York City for a long time, uh, but the culture there was, was bland and boring for him, and he had to come back to Puerto Rico. And all of this was expressed through food. Uh, food is how we express ourselves. When people come to visit us, even though it's a fair bit of work, we like to entertain them by feeding them. And when we visit people, we know that we have been warmly received when they host us and feed us. 
And when I came here for the first time, many of you fed me. And uh, the relationship builds and grows from those close, intimate moments when we sit down and eat together. So here, Paul writes, uh, we are not missing out if we don't eat. And we don't have any advantage if we do eat. Well, this kind of runs against some of our experience. And the context is a little bit different here. Uh, but food really is at the center of how we interact with each other. It's, it's at the center of how we understand ourselves. Uh, and many of us take pride in being able to make certain dishes. Many of us can, can go on at length about how we like certain food prepared. Food is at the center of how we understand ourselves. And it's a big part of what we do as a church. We're going to have a meal a little bit later on. We want to talk about who we are as, as Trinity. And so there's, there's food associated. That's not an accident. That's not coincidence. Food is associated with who we are. Food is associated with our religious story. Uh, next week I'm talking about communion. We're going to have communion together. That's food. It's, it's a reminder of food that Jesus ate with his disciples. Food was at the center of their, inter of their interactions with Jesus. And if we, we think about the stories of, of Jesus' life, a lot of them revolve around food. Uh, when uh, Jesus performed his first miracle, he turned water to wine. He, he took a, a wedding celebration that was dying out, and he gave it life and excitement. Jesus uh, was, was preaching, and, and the disciples came to him and said, uh, these people don't have enough food. We certainly don't have food for them. You have to send them home. And Jesus said, no, we're not going to let food get in the way of the gospel. We're not going to let food get in the way of people knowing my power. So then food will become how they know my power. Right? Jesus performed miracles, and people ate. Food was at the center of, of what Jesus was doing. I could go on and on about uh, the stories of Jesus eating food. <clears throat> Going back to the Old Testament, too, we have uh, interesting stories of food. In Puerto Rico, I, I gathered with uh, a small little church group, and uh, they were asking people to sign up for fasting. So, sort of contrary here. Um, but a big part of how we celebrate Jesus, how we worship Jesus, is by giving ourselves temporary hardships by avoiding food. So, harder for some people than others, and uh, practiced by some religious groups more than others. Not a lot of Mennonites celebrate fasting, but it's a big deal for a lot of people. And so because I was a visitor, they said I didn't have to sign up, which was, which was a relief. But they offered a number of options. They said, uh, you can, you can ha have a fast for uh, a full day. Uh, you can fast, for, uh, fast from technology, fast from social media. Um, you can also do a Daniel fast. And I hadn't heard a lot about that before, so I was chatting with people afterwards. And they explained, a Daniel fast is where you eat like Daniel... Uh, when he arrived in Babylon. So Daniel, uh, we talked about him this morning in Sunday school. Daniel is living in Jerusalem. He's part of the wealthy class, the ruling class, whatever. 
The Babylonian army comes, they destroy the city, uh, they, they pillage the temple, and they take a whole bunch of the young men with them back to Babylon to educate them and to turn them into good subjects of their king. And the king wants this to happen, wants these young men to learn about uh, Babylonian culture and language and religion. And, and he's, of course, he's going to feed them, sort of obvious. Well, uh, Daniel is one of them, and Daniel doesn't want the food. Daniel doesn't want the food that the king is offering. Right, so Daniel has been taken prisoner. Everything he knows has been destroyed. His relatives have been uh, brutally murdered uh, and uh, other things, probably. All of this is in his understanding of what Babylonian culture is. He, has, he wants nothing to do with it. And so uh, the Babylonian king who ordered his kidnapping has said, okay, here's the food you can eat. So it makes sense that Daniel says, uh, no, I'm, I'm not interested. Send it back. Well, there's a, there's a man in, in charge of, of the young men. And uh, so Daniel goes to talk to him and says, listen, I, I'm not keen on eating this food. This, uh, I don't want it. What, what can I do? And the man says, listen, it's my job to feed you. If the king comes and looks and sees that you're skinny and gaunt and uh, starving, it's going to look like I'm not doing my job. That's my life on the line. Uh, so you've got to eat. And Daniel says, okay, I've got a compromise. Uh, for the next little while, I'm going to just drink water and eat vegetables. That's it. And I'm going to look just as healthy and strong as all these other guys. And the ruler doesn't believe him and says, okay, fine, uh, we'll do that. And if you are wrong, uh, then you've got to eat the regular food. Right? Food is at the center of how Daniel understood himself as well. Right? Daniel didn't just eat regular food in Jerusalem. He ate kosher food. He ate food that was intentionally prepared, carefully prepared, with religious instructions in mind. All of this informed Daniel's decision about what he wanted to eat. And so he ate vegetables and water as a kind of protest. And uh, coming as no surprise to the vegetarians in the room... There might be some in the room, I don't know. Uh, but he was healthy and strong. And uh, in contrast to their expectations. So he continued that diet while he was in Babylon. Food is at the center of cultural, religious, social understandings. So when we get to the story in 1 Corinthians here, we need a little bit of extra background knowledge. So Paul is, is writing to a church who is arguing about food. And it isn't just about uh, whether or not uh, food should be eaten in the building, if you can bring outside food in. Those are standard conversations that we have now. Uh, but what was happening in this community was that people would go to the marketplace and you can buy meat directly from a butcher, and it's been cleaned, and it's been carefully cut, and it's available for a regular price. Or you can eat meat from uh, the priests and uh, adherents of the local pagan religion. And that meat is cheaper. 
Of course it is, because it's like buying clothing from a thrift shop. The meat sacrificed to idols was donated as a sign of uh, loyalty to that god, to that uh, temple, to that idol. And so the priests of those religions, they, they take what has been offered, and uh, then they might eat some themselves, and they take the rest. They don't want it to spoil, or they don't want to throw it out or bury it. So they bring it to the marketplace and sell it. And so there's this meat here that has been part of a religious ceremony. Um, it has been... We don't know how it has been prepared, how carefully, how, uh, how much health was taken into consideration, how much religious uh, expectations was taken into consideration. And then it was, you know, there were words of incantation or blessing or a prayer to other gods offered over this meat. And then that meat was taken to the market, it's being sold, and whatever money is raised by selling that meat will then go to facilitate the religious practice that was happening, that, was, uh, that the meat was sacrificed to. So it's not that hard to understand that this meat uh, cannot be eaten easily without offending some level of your conscience. Now, this, that part of it isn't that hard for, for us to understand. Uh, every now and then, um, the political conversations on my Facebook feed are interrupted with pictures of travel and food. Now, all of a sudden, something is new, and I just saw this for the first time uh, yesterday. I went to the grocery store, and available for purchase is American Milk. That's a big deal for some people, especially the dairy farming friends that I have in Ontario. And so I have been warned numerous times on Facebook not to buy American milk for a lot of reasons. Uh, they put different hormones in their milk than, than we do. It goes through different filtering processes than ours does. Uh, and it takes money away from Canadian dairy farmers. So <clears throat> this isn't... Uh, you know, people aren't just kind of mentioning this in passing. Oh, hey, by the way, just so you know, uh, there's this American milk, but you might, you know, might be better off to buy. No, they're passionate, right? We can't allow this into our system. Just because the government has allowed it in doesn't mean that we have to buy it. So don't buy it, All right? As, as, as loud as that comes through my Facebook feed, that's, that's the message we get that this is how we understand ourselves as Canadians. We support each other. We support our Canadian farmers. Because they have regulations that we value, they have uh, uh, employment practices that we value, they treat their animals in a way that we value, all of that, we, we can trust that because we have Canadian standards. And so this is what's happening here. So there's, a, there's an argument between the people who say, this isn't cool, we can't, we can't buy this meat for a long list of reasons. And then there's another group of people that say, uh, these other gods don't exist. Who cares what words have been offered over it? It's empty and meaningless, and the meat is cheaper, so let's do it. So, which side should we understand? Which, which side would we come out on if, if we were to observe this 
conversation happening in front of us. Well, looking at this text, we see, okay, well, Paul seems to come out on a certain side, so then we would come out on that side. But when we put ourselves in that story, it's not so easy to do. Right? If, if we listen to that argument, then we can understand, well, I sort of might come out on, on that side. So the, the argument that's offered against is a pretty academic argument. The, the Christians who are saying it's no big deal, it's just meat, uh, they were uh, from a group of people called the Gnostics, and they just were pursuing higher knowledge. And if, if you have higher knowledge, then you will know that there is no God being sacrificed to. Uh, the words of blessing over that meat accomplish nothing, and we know that. And so if we know that, then we know that it's fine. So then Paul is setting up this contrast. There is what we know, and then there is the weakness of our brothers and sisters. So are we just going to pursue what we know? Are we going to use our knowledge to build ourselves up? Or are we going to pay attention to the weakness of the people around us whose conscience is weighed down by these things? Paul is setting up a different argument than the people were ready to have. The people were ready to argue about the pieces of information. And the information was supposed to help them come to a a smarter conclusion. Uh, When I was in high school in the 90s, uh, just to give my age away, although most of you would sort of have guessed that, when I was in high school in the 90s, there was a lot of talk about uh, this thing that was going to be coming called the information superhighway. The information superhighway was what they called the internet at that time. And the internet in the 1990s was pretty lousy in in contrast to what we have now. Because any idiot with an email address could set up a web page and put anything they wanted on it. And that's still true today, uh, but in the 90s, that's pretty much what the whole internet was, was websites like that. And yet, somehow, people believed that this ability to share information freely was going to change the world because we were all going to be having access to so much information, we would make smarter decisions, and the world would become a more harmonious place. Surprise! Uh, Access to information has not made the world a more harmonious place. Access to information has made us worse. We treat each other worse because we know more stuff. That's not what they told me in the 90s about the information superhighway, but that's what my Facebook feed tells me. Right? I see all sorts of posts full of information, and I could respond with information of my own, and from time to time I do and then regret it. But when that exchange of information happens, it doesn't build relationships. And so here is here Paul is looking at a situation where there's an argument between two people exchanging information. And one side says we know better, and the other side says no you don't, we know stuff that you don't seem to care about. Now, it would be easy for us to say, well, these people in 
Corinth weren't as smart as they think they are, but we are beyond that. Well, no, we're surrounded by these arguments all the time. And we think as soon as people understand things the way that we do, the arguments will be resolved. What argument could possibly be left? But Paul writes uh, at the beginning here of of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8, Now concerning meat that has been sacrificed to a false god, we know, right, so he's kind of egging the, the Gnostics on here, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes people arrogant, but love builds people up. I spent a lot of time in academic settings and and continue to do so, and I know a lot of smart people that I really respect, uh, but I know a lot of smart people that uh, don't have a lot of smarts outside of the classroom. And I've spent a lot of time with uh, simple, uneducated people, uh, and the love that they show is just as valuable in their homes as it is in their communities, as it is in the classrooms where they don't uh, learn as much. Knowledge will only get us so far. If anyone thinks they know something, this is uh, verse 2, they don't yet know as much as they should know. But if someone loves God, then they are known by God. So Paul turns things around in in an interesting way here. He could say, as as he sort of does in other places, uh, it isn't enough to just know the benefits of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Um, It isn't enough to just know what happens to that meat and the money that supports it. Uh, you should just get to know God. Uh, that's, that's what we read in other parts of the Bible. That's what we tell each other. But that's not what Paul says here, and I, I think it's interesting to point out that difference. That given the choice of adding to our knowledge or building up our love, uh, Paul says there's a twofold benefit here. But if someone loves God, they are known by God. It isn't enough to just know stuff. It isn't enough to just know God. God needs to know us. Right? God needs to, to know us, be familiar with us, and we make ourselves familiar by showing love. Paul is speaking into a difficult circumstance, and it would be great to uh, follow Paul around sort of like a few years later. It'd be great to visit the church of Corinth afterwards and say, hey, how did that meeting, eating meat thing play out? Which side won? Did, did Paul's words convince you guys, or did you continue fighting afterwards? And the same thing would be true here. We could have world experts on all sorts of issues of uh, charity and politics and sexuality. They could come in here and they could fill our minds with knowledge about things that we couldn't even imagine. But would it make a difference? That's the question. The thing is, we can't bring in experts on love. 
because each of us is an expert on love. Each of us is an expert on the love that we need. Each of us is an expert on the love that we didn't get that we wanted. And each of us is an expert on where love can be shown. We just don't know it. But if someone loves God, they are known by God. So it isn't, it isn't enough to know the rules and follow them. And we don't follow rules for our own benefit. We think it brings us closer to God. Uh, but that's not primarily how we do it. When we value love first, then rules kind of fall by the wayside. And yet, the people whose conscience was struck by eating this meat sacrificed to idols, they did that out of love too. They loved God. They loved uh, the ways that they had come to understand how meat should be prepared. They loved uh, being a part of the, the Jewish community and what that meant for them. All of that was, was good and gave life and joy to them. And so meat being sacrificed to idols was, was an offense to that. And maybe gradually they would change their minds. But this was something that was love-based for them too. So we have a group of people who out of their love for God are building their knowledge, they're reading, they're studying, they're becoming as smart as they can. And another people, based on their love for God, are avoiding everything that they think is impure. Well, they both love God. And that's where the common ground needs to be. And so when we love God, then we also need to love each other. And so Paul's message, which came out clearly in the passage that Verna read, is that if we love each other, we will make decisions that benefit each other. And so if you see somebody eating meat that's been sacrificed to idols, and you know... Uh, that, it, that it offends the, the conscience and the sensitivities of the people around you, then that's doing harm. That, you can't call that love. And so when we pursue a God who's, who is love, right? God is the embodiment of love. If we want to follow that God, then we show love to the people around us. And it can become dizzying, I know this. It can become dizzying to try to avoid offending people. That's not the point. But the point is that when we think about the people around us and we want their best, if we want the best for them, then when we do that, we, and we might fail, but when we do that, then we are participating in a relationship with them. We're showing love to them and in doing that, we also show love to God. So, uh, I can't, as a conclusion, tell you to avoid eat meat, uh, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Uh, I can't tell you to be gentle to the people who are offended by meats, eat, eating meat sacrificed to idols. But I can challenge you, and this is a challenge for me too, that building our knowledge isn't enough. Building love is how we will show our devotion to God, and it is how we will build unity with each other. So let's become that as individuals, and let's become that as a church. Amen.